Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Extra Time, a web-only programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. Coming up in the programme, we examine the decision not to ban Belarusian shot put in Jose Ostapchuk for life, which has left New Zealand's Olympic and world champion Valerie Adams bitterly disappointed. The fallout begins in the wake of the breakers' troubled Australian national basketball season. The New Zealand Rugby Union bans grands from gambling. The Black Caps reflect on yet another disappointing World Cup tournament and mental health issues were affecting professional footballers worldwide. The World Anti-Doping Agency believes a new code coming into force next year will be tougher on athletes caught doping. The Belarusian shot putter Nadzea Ostapchuk, who initially denied New Zealander Valerie Adams the shot put gold medal at the London Olympics, was stripped of her Olympic title after returning a positive test for performance-enhancing drugs. A subsequent test of a 2005 sample also recorded a positive test. The IAAF has given Ostapchuk a retrospective four-year suspension, meaning she'll be suspended until after the Rio Olympics in 2016. Adams has expressed her frustration at the IAAF's failure to impose a lifetime ban on Ostapchuk. She tweeted her disappointment at the decision and her manager Nick Cowan admits it's not the result they'd hoped for. Effectively, she's got two positive drug tests. Now, there is some precedent there that um, you would be facing or could face a life ban. So we, uh, to, to be honest, we were expecting something a bit heftier than, than, than four years. But, you know, it is what it is. The WADA Director-General David Halman told Morning Report Susie Ferguson that under the rules, the IAAF, Athletics World Governing Body, has acted correctly in not giving Ostapchuk a life ban. We have a job to do, which is to oversee all the sanctions that are imposed on athletes who have cheated. Uh, and I've had my team uh, do that in relation to this particular case, which I've recused myself for, for obvious reasons. Being a New Zealander, I shouldn't partake in any decision uh, relating but, to. But uh, do you think this Zealander. is? But do you actually think this is a harsh enough punishment? Well, the issue is: does it, is it a punishment that has been meted out according to the rules? And the answer to that is yes, it has been, and it's the top penalty that can be imposed pursuant to the rules that are in place at the present. So, in that case, you weren't surprised when you heard the outcome of this. Well. I'm not a person that is subject to emotional response to any decision. I'm a person who looks at the rules to see if they're being applied appropriately, and if so, we do not partake. If not, we will appeal those cases to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. We've chosen not to in this case because the IAAF, the international body responsible, has followed the rules. They've dealt with the two cases that this woman uh, was confronted with as if they were one because she was advised of them at the same time. And the process for such a case is that the highest penalty that could be imposed is a four-year ban. So even though she tested positively, ultimately across sev- well, 
a 2005 sample and a 2012 sample, so across seven years, that still can't result in a life ban. That seems amazing. Well, I think you have to pair back a little bit and say the 2005 sample was stored for seven years and retested in 2012. But so it still records a positive test. Yes, of course it did. It still but shows she was using banned substances in 2005. That's true. And if she had been uh, sanctioned in 2005, she probably would have received a two-year penalty in 2005 and been banned from competition then. She wasn't. She was advised of that positive test in 2012 at the same time she was advised of a positive test relating to her performance at the Olympic Games. And so the rules provide that those two cases be held together. There's an appeals process. Could a life ban yet happen? No, the appeal, the appeal time has, uh, has elapsed and nobody has appealed. We've taken the decision here, as I pointed out before, not to appeal because the rules have been uh, followed to the T. If they have, then there's no inconsistency or no non-compliance where uh, there can be a, a successful appeal. Do you think the rules are good enough where an athlete can effectively be using banned substances over a seven-year period but yet not receive a life ban? Do you not think that should perhaps be looked at again? Well, we have looked at all the penalties again, and you'll know that there will be a new code of rules coming into place on the 1st of January 2015 with heavier penalties. And so uh, this individual might, if she had tested positive under the new regime, received a, a, a larger penalty. That's been the, the way of the, of the will of the world. It's not a WADA decision, it's the world decision, and, and we will have heavier penalties going forward. A difficult position, though, for an athlete like Valerie Adams to be in, where she sees this play out and perhaps could be left somewhat dissatisfied with the outcome. Look, of, of course athletes have views, and we respect those views. I think, on the other hand, if the testing program hadn't been as rigorous as it were, uh, Valerie would still be in possession of the silver medal from London. And so I think you have to look uh, dispassionately at these sorts of things and work out what the rules are, how they've been applied, and, and what the outcomes have been achieved. What hit do you think Nadzea Ostapchuk's career is going to take with this four-year ban? Obviously, she'll miss the next Olympics because of missing qualifying. Does this ultimately signal the end for her? Well, I would be surprised if she were to be selected by the Belarusian uh, Olympic Committee. I mean, they've got to make the decisions as to who, are, who is selected and so forth, and it would have to be uh, done with the knowledge of all the background information that they would have in relation to the athlete. If you've disgraced your country, uh, there are some countries who would say, well, you're not going to get the opportunity to disgrace us again. Do you think that's likely to happen? Well, I'm not a, a, a crystal ball gazer. I'm, I'm a person who has to do a job on a daily basis. I think you've got to... Uh, say, can you predict anything in four years' time? Probably not. That's no, but this is this is an area that you work in, that you have experience in. What is, what is your sense of where this will go? Well, I think uh, the Belarusians are the people who have to answer that, and we see all sorts of things going on in that part of the world that mightn't be the sorts of things that will go on in the part of the world that you live in. Uh, and so you think she could it, still? You think she could still be selected? Well, once once somebody's done their time, done their sanction then, just like somebody who's been to prison, they're free again, and they're able to compete. If you didn't allow them to compete, you'd be in breach of their human rights. So you've got to say, uh, when somebody has done their sanction, they have the ability to come back. We had occasions of athletes who uh, competed at the London Olympic Games who had been banned previously and won gold medals. So, you know, those things happen. It's part of life. That's the Director-General of the World Anti-Doping Agency, David Howman.
The fallout's begun from the Breakers' disappointing National Basketball League season with import guard Keron Johnson released by the club. The move's one of many that will unfold over the coming months as the club reviews its failure to make the playoffs for the first time in four years in the ANBL. There are also fears that the star swingman Tom Abercrombie may not be around next year after he left for a short-term stint with a French club. Abercrombie has clauses in his contract with the Breakers, allowing him to leave if he secures a deal with an overseas team. Basketball reporter Alex Coogan-Reeves spoke to the club's general manager, Richard Clark and asked him if there were concerns over the potential of Abercrombie joining a European club permanently. When you have good players, other people are going to be interested in them, uh, but... Uh, Tom would be um, at the World Champs in September anyway in Spain. You know, he's going to be on people's radar. So, um, you know, we have to be realistic about that as well. We also know that how much he likes playing here and he's uh, he's very settled here with, and he's got his family around him. So, uh, you know, we're, we're not going to get overly concerned um, uh, if, if something happens, it happens. Um, he does have buyout options on his contract, uh, but... You know, at this stage, uh, we don't see any danger of him leaving before next season. I guess um, from your position, things played out on the court a lot differently than they have sort of the three years prior. Was this something that you saw coming or w- weren't overly surprised by, given the change that the club had gone through? Uh, I don't know if it's something we saw coming and you know, we were, or we were we overly surprised by it, but yeah, we, we knew that Things uh, were going to be hard, you know, maybe harder than they they have been the last couple of years, based on that level of change. Um, you know, looking at the photo of the group that was at the uh, the second grand final in Perth last year, we've had 60% of the 18 people in that group had gone by the time we got to the the end of the season this year, and that's that's massive turnover, you know. I mean, it includes our development players and off-court staff and things like that, but all of those people within our culture have a player role, so having that level of change is obviously massive. Um, I think, particularly in those leadership areas, um, obviously Dre had been here a long time and had developed uh, his own systems, and, and Dean's been um, you know, going through the, the process of, of being a head coach for the first time and, and finding his own uh vision and his own structures uh, but I think the, the loss of, um, of Dylan in particular was one that we maybe didn't anticipate just quite how much that would have an impact. Um, also the, obviously Alex's involvement being lessened with injury it was was a year that we we had probably more change than we even realised we had at the start of it and, and that is his carry through as to what the results were at the end of it. And you mentioned before uh, with Dean, he, he's taken some time to sort of stamp his mark on the team, even though he has been there a long time. It's a lot different when, you, um, when you're when you the boss. Are you sort of happy that he's sort of now taken that time and he's he's going to be better next year? Yeah, the, the review process is a, a big period for him. He gets to you know, test out the things that he's been working on with the players, get their feedback, get the coaching team's feedback and uh, you know, he gets to now put together his plan for for what he thinks we need to do for the next year, and and that's uh, we'll, we'll go through that with him next week, and you know that's really the opportunity for him to define his vision and and where it needs to go. I think the first year for any head coach is a is a real learning one where 
particularly stepping out of someone as, um, who's had such success and is such a strong personality as Andre. It's, it's always going to be hard to put your own stamp on it, but um, you know, Dean now has the opportunity next week to, to show us uh, where he wants to take it and what that looks like. But from the conversations you've had with him already, are you happy with the direction that he's got in mind? And Yeah, as I say, I don't think there's, there's massive change needed to get good gains. It's about, you know, we've got six guys still on contract. It's what are the pieces we need to add to that. Uh, we, you know, we're pretty clear on where we need to improve with athleticism and defence and um, adjustments to the way the game was um, officiated this year and and accepting that and actually making the adjustments uh, rather than resisting it is, is going to be important for us. Um, yeah, so I, th- I think that there's um, it's not a matter of uh, making massive change. It's a matter of um, getting back to what we do well and, and then really focusing on, on getting that right. Just looking at some of the personnel sort of things now with... Um with those imports you've got, obviously with Caron, you've you've got that option for next year. Is there any sort of idea on whether that's going to be taken up or what the situation is there? Uh, I believe Dino did talk to Caron before he left and we won't be taking up that option. But, um, we think we just need to uh, go in a slightly different direction in that point guard role. Um, no, I think Caron was a, was a good player. Um, uh, we were maybe just not quite the right fit, particularly after the, the rule adjustments that I know Dean's looking at um, someone that maybe a bit more size in, in that position. But, um, you know, I think Caron had a pretty solid season. It's a matter of what we need to look at for for our group. Um, it's probably a little bit different next season. And is there a player that you've got in mind to fill that role or is it going out and looking for a... Some... Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's quite a recruitment process. Obviously, Cedric's name comes up a lot in media, and uh, and he's a guy that we will certainly touch base with and see where he's at. But uh, it's also no, it's going to be a bit more of a recruitment process. The NBL has a, a summer league program in Las Vegas uh, at the same time as the NBA summer leagues program this year, so that's a really good opportunity to get over and uh, work out guys and and, uh, and just see what's out there and, and also get that that face-to-face relationship building, uh, which is so important in terms of trusting the person as much as the player. Right, So, but presumably if Cedric Jackson was happy to come back for a year, you, you'd you forgo that process and take him back? or? Uh, yeah, I think Ced would. He's obviously a player that's been very successful here and, uh, and, and knows us and, and there's that sort of bigger, more athletic guard, but... Uh, there's also things we need to check out uh, in terms of the injury issues he's had this year and just make sure he's healthy before we, we did anything too um, certain with Sid. Have you had any? Have you had any indication from him on what his preferences are, or is he um, you're yet to go through that? He's at a he's no, it was released from his um, civilian team just not less than a month ago, so he's doing his injury rehab at the moment. I think he's probably a little bit away from making too many decisions on his future. Cool. And uh, the other import spot, um, you'd be look, looking for someone new for that, or is Gary still an option? What's um, Gary's probably unlikely. He, I think um, in terms of what his plans are, as well as what and 
ours. But uh, yeah, I think um, in terms of the the skill set there will be determined. We obviously Alex is rehabbing from his ankle surgery, and so we'll just keep a track on how he's going and, and the progress he's making. And it's been uh, obviously finding what the fit is for the the support and the, the other two bigs positions um, backing up Alex and Micah. The Kirk Penny thing sort of got <laughs> got squashed to bed, but um, was there any there was conversations with him? I presume. And where did it sort of get to? There's been conversations with Kirk for three years. You know, he's part of the family. We talk to him all the time. He's he's got a close relationship with our owners, and you know, this year was wasn't too different to that. He was he's always talked about wanting to come back and um, you know finish his career here, and so. We were just having the same conversations we always have in terms of timing, and uh, you know he's he's pretty close to making that decision. One of the things though that he wanted to to get done beforehand was to finish off his degree at Wisconsin. So uh, he'll be heading back to Madison in September and and finishing off the papers he needs to, which that should be about mid-December. I think he'll finish up there, and then that gives him the opportunity to to look at playing a short. Uh, or half season in Europe and then make a, a bigger decision on whether he, he, that's the time for him to come back or, or not. That's the general manager of the Breakers, Richard Clark, talking to Alex Coogan-Reeves. You're listening to Extra Time, a web-only programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. The International Rugby Board is banning grandparents, mothers, fathers, brothers and sisters of professional rugby players from sports betting on all rugby matches. It's part of a new anti-corruption policy being implemented by the New Zealand Rugby Union. NZRU staff and their families are also affected. The union's general manager of professional rugby, Neil Sorensen, concedes the move is draconian, but he says corruption can involve a player, coach, referee or family members using inside information to make a bet on a game. Anybody involved in the, in the game, whether you're a player, a coach, physio, doctor, trainer, or even the the, the, the brother of a player, um, believe it or not, we're saying you can't bet on any rugby at all. So so a Timmy Bateman can't put a, a $5 bet on Scotland versus England for this weekend, for example, which sounds draconian, um, but we're, we're putting a line in the sand and saying that we, we want to try and resist uh, any temptation a, uh, at all that might bring a, bring the integrity of our sport into um, uh, into disharmony. So you're banning family members from betting too? Yep, yep, it sounds weird. But the, the key thing is is that if, if they've got information that, that the average... Say, for example, my son. Uh, if I pass on information to my son because I have access to information that the general public don't have on injuries around a Crusaders team, for example, um, and I pass that on to my son who then bets on that, essentially that is corruption at its smallest point, if you like. Uh, and, and, and we're trying to nip that in the bud. But in saying that... You know, we're, we're not going to send down investigators to, to Invercargill to nail a grandmother for putting $5 on her grandson scoring first try. That's not what this is about. How could you even implement that? I mean, how can you make a regulation or get players to sign up to something that, that accounts for something that someone else is... Well, seem, it seems like you mentioned quite draconian and trampling on people's individual rights. Yeah, um, and, and look... The, the key thing, the, the integrity of, of our sport, this great sport called rugby, to ensure that it remains really clean from um, any form of corruption, whether it's drugs or um, supplements or gambling or violence or 
um, you know, alcohol abuse, any of those issues we need to try and get out of our game. And so, so if that's the case, you know, we need to be sure that our game's so clean that the AIGs of this world or the Adidas of this world or the New Zealands or Lion Nathans still want to associate themselves with our sport. Um, and there's, there's plenty of case evidence to suggest that, you know, there's a lot of um, teams now, um, whether they're cycling teams or rugby league teams or NFL, AFL teams, where, you know, who do struggle now because of their brand or their, their sport themselves has been, has been tainted. Why bother if it's unrealistic to follow it up? I mean, presumably it would seem appropriate for players not to, yeah. to bet, but their, yeah. their friend or their relatives, their families, I mean, yeah. it would seem impossible to actually police it. All we're saying to the players is you can't pass information on to someone who's then going to use that information um, to gain, you know, have a monetary gain on, on the particular sport. So, and look, it went down fine. The, the, the guys were saying they understood, you know, they, they find it a bit hard, like, like a lot of us when these regulations first came out, Stephen, they found it hard to understand why they couldn't have a bet on Tonga versus Scotland um, played in Murrayfield. But, but essentially, you've got to put in the line in the sand at some stage. You can't sort of say, oh, look, it's OK if you've never played for Scotland or you don't have any friends in the Scottish team. So it's pretty much a blanket, um, you know. Uh, and, and look, we don't, think it's, we don't think it's too over the top. But I mean, even whether or not they've passed on of information, it would seem somewhat over the top to actually stop their brother, grandmother, whatever, having a bet on, on a rugby match full stop. We're saying 2,000 people that we're going to focus on and we're putting the asset on. But it's wider than that if, you, if you're banning grandmothers and granddads from, from having a bet. Well, uh, I don't want to keep harping on that. As I say, we're not introducing these regulations to stop grandmothers putting $5 bets on, you know. You look at Sevens Rugby, now played um, and telecast or broadcast um, globally across many, many, uh, many of the continents now. Played in, in countries and played by guys that, that aren't earning uh, massive amounts of money. Now, uh, you know, there's a sport that could potentially be, um, be ripe, if you like, um, for the, the bookmakers or illegal punters in, in India or Pakistan or wherever um, to get their teeth into. And, you know, that, that's what's happened in other sports and we don't want to go there. The Rugby Players Association says the new anti-corruption laws are poorly drafted and will be hard to enforce. The chief executive of the Players Association, Rob Nicholl, says it's the International Rugby Board's definition of a connected person that causes the problem. He says the association and a lot of other people in world rugby have pointed out that it's a ridiculous definition that goes well beyond the necessary scope. He spoke to Morning Reports' Guy Espiner. What it is is all those that are connected to the game in some sort of official capacity at the professional or semi-professional level cannot bet on rugby. And then when it comes to family and friends, those members have to actually be part of the NZAU's jurisdiction in order to be, if you like, uh, regarded as a connected person and then restricted from betting. Yes, but that could well involve um, the friends and close family members of those players being banned from betting, couldn't it? Oh, absolutely. You know, well, here goes the irony of the whole situation. This is the IRB's definition of connected person. That's why we're in this particular situation. And we and a lot of other people from World Rugby pointed out that that was a uh, rather ridiculous definition and um, is going well beyond the scope of that that they needed to go beyond. Um, anyway, the end result is they chose to define it that way. It's, it, to be perfectly honest, it's completely impractical and I cannot imagine that anyone will ever try and actually enforce it. But the power exists though, doesn't it? And that's the problem, is that the definition is there and if it is ludicrous, it still could be used because it's on the books, right? Yeah, but I just, uh, like I say, um, we tried to point that out. It wasn't uh, wasn't listened to. They've gone with this definition. But do you think it's been poorly drafted? Oh, 
absolutely. I'm not the only one that's saying that. A lot of people are saying it, but you know, we're we're extremely comfortable with the fact that we don't believe it's going to be enforced or little or more. And beyond that, I don't think they'd actually have an ability to enforce it. It's, it's such a wide area. You know, being a, a friend of a coach and then expecting that person to be banned from betting uh, because you're a friend of a coach. I mean, who's going to define who's a friend and who's not? It, it just It's a little bit ridiculous. So who will have the power to decide um, whether you go after someone for betting or not? That'll be really up to the NZIU in New Zealand, for instance, or the IRB from an international perspective. What's your advice? Because this is quite complex stuff. What is your advice to players in terms of should they tell all their friends and family not to bet on games? I mean, what are you telling the guys? No, from a player's perspective, um, you know, their obligations are similar to a coach or a manager or a trainer or an administrator. And, you know, when it comes to friends and associates, the key, the key message that they need to pass on is, listen, um, as a player, I'm close to the game. I'm aware of some information. If I tell you something that is kind of privileged information, don't go using it to place a bet. If I tell you, it'll be because I've told you by mistake. That, that's the biggest message we're giving the guys. So this is a solution to what sort of problem? I mean, is it a problem in the game at the moment? No, I don't believe so, actually. Um, from a New Zealand perspective, it's not. But, you know, we're not naive. We're part of a global game. And, you know, when you look at another rival code, potentially, for example, football, it's a significant issue in Eastern Europe and some of the some continents in Asia. You know, you've got to be proactive around these kind of things. And I think to have regulation and policy in place is sensible. But by far, the, the most important aspect of the whole thing is the education and awareness. That's the Chief Executive of the Rugby Players Association, Rob Nicholl. The Black Cab's disappointing performance at the 2020 Cricket World Cup could prove costly for some in the side when it comes to the renewal of national contracts. Chasing 120 to beat Sri Lanka to reach the semi-finals in Bangladesh, the Black Cabs were dismissed for only 60, with Kane Williamson top-scoring with 42. The Sri Lankan left-arm spinner Rangana Hirath took five wickets for just three runs, the third-best bowling figures ever in international T20 cricket. So the Black Caps yet again failed to make a World Tournament final. I asked coach Mike Hessen about when that might change and what was going wrong. He's a different bowler when the ball uh, grips, some grip and some skid on. And I think in Test cricket, when you're able to sit on him, um, it's a different story. But obviously in T20, you, um, you've got to try and find a way to score. And, and to be fair, we, we didn't really do either. So, um, yeah, I mean, we, we've had difficulty with, with the likes of Shaqib. Um, you know, on similar wickets where they some grip and some skid, um, and I think our you know our method in Test cricket is to, to play for the ball to go straight, um, and if it turns, then so be it. You know, hopefully it goes past the outside edge. But uh, you know, we played um, too many balls sort of across the line. Um, you know, played around the ball, and, uh, and he bowled really nicely, and we just um, yeah we weren't good enough. Presumably, that approach though, playing across the line, wasn't the plan going into chasing down that title? Oh, look, every player has a different way of, of scoring, and I think in, in T20 cricket, obviously, you've, you've got a method that you need to find in terms of how you're going to score and how, you, how you're going to find a way of, of being able to manipulate a, a strike rate. Um, you know, when you've got, you know, I guess, mystery spinners as, um, you know, Senanayaka and, and Co, you, you've got Malinga, you've got, you know, Kulisokra that swings it, you actually have to score. You can't just sort of sit on everybody. And um, I think our, uh, our method of you know bringing what we've trained um, out to the middle, we certainly weren't able to do this, and that's probably the most the most frustrating thing. So, what do you do from from here on in? Do, do you 
to, to revisit things, as particularly the playing of spin. Does that become a, a, a major priority? Oh, like I said, it's different in different forms of the game. In terms of Test cricket, um, playing left arm spin, we've you know we've been very good recently. Um, you know, so we've made big improvements there. But as I said, obviously doing it um, in conditions like that when it spins, and, and in the West Indies will get challenged again. Um, you know, in, in Test cricket, obviously we'll have Narine and probably Shillingford on on some dusty wickets over there. So, um, you know, thankfully we've got a few guys going over the IPL. They'll get some experience over there. Um, you know, we've got a 12-day build-up in the West Indies in terms of uh, warm-up games and, and playing against spin. And it's a, you know, it's a, it's an area where, as I said, in the longer form, we've made huge strides, but a big step back for the short form. Brendan McCullum made the comment in the aftermatch press conference that there were things that had irked him with the side through the the tournament. Was the phrase that he used? What what particularly were those? Uh, that's something we'll work through in our review, but um, we certainly had some. Um, you know, some areas of concern um, throughout the, the two weeks and, and the fact we weren't able to put in a 100% team performance um, was frustrating. Are you able to enlarge upon that? No, not at this stage. The review process that will take place over what sort of period before you head to the Caribbean? Oh, look, we, we've, we've got contract reviews coming up. I mean, we've obviously, um, you know, we've had a pretty good year in a lot of ways and it's just a disappointing way to finish, but certainly there's been a lot of good things. So uh, we won't review fundamentally on on one 2020 innings, but uh, we'll certainly review the whole the whole year in context, and um, we'll do some of those before the West Indies, some of them after, depending on on where players are. The problems that Brendan mentioned, it would seem that what things haven't carried over approach-wise from from obviously the successful domestic summer uh, approach from the the players wasn't what you would have hoped. Uh, as I said, we, we just didn't put in a 100% performance um, throughout the two weeks. And when you go into a T20 tournament like this, um, you know, you've, you've got to hit the ground running. And um, we were we were adequate, um, but we didn't uh, perform. Like I said, we didn't take what we what we practiced out in the middle, and that's something we've got to we've got to rectify. I suppose you look ahead now to the the next sort of big one day tournament. It's obviously the the World Cup, which New Zealand's co-hosting. What what do you think you're going to be the big learnings you take from this tournament? Oh, more about as I said, taking what you what you practice out in the middle. I think the conditions are obviously completely different. You know, we've got a, a very good framework in one day cricket. We know um, everyone's roles and responsibilities, and people stick to those. So um, that's you know we're pretty clear about how we go about that. But um, the ability to to follow a game plan, the ability to perform your role under pressure, are certainly areas that. Um, you know, we need to constantly strive to get better at. Do, do you think that the side sort of got to a higher level or able to, to do that in a one-day format better than it is at the, the T20 game at the moment? Uh, well, no, I mean, we've won seven of our last nine T20 internationals, so we're playing pretty good T20 cricket. That's probably why it's even more frustrating that um, in a, a key game at a key time, um, you know, we weren't able to, to bring our method, and that's, you know, that's pretty disappointing, but as I said, quite a different surface last night than what we've had for the rest of the tournament, and we just weren't able to adapt. Do you think it's the handling of pressure moments that, that plays a part in that? Uh, oh, certainly there's an element of that with some. There's no doubt about that. Um, you know, some are less experienced than others. Um, you know, the more times you're in that situation, the 
the bitter decisions you make over time. But yeah, you know, we were put under pressure by some quality bowling, and, and we just didn't react as well as we know we have and we know we can. That's Black Cabs coach Mike Hesson. The squad for the upcoming Test and 2020 matches against the West Indies in the Caribbean will be named next week. It's the most popular sport in the world, but a new study has found many professional footballers are struggling with mental health problems, with one in four reporting depression and anxiety. That's about the same level as that of the general public, but the rate increases to one in three among retired footballers. The findings have even surprised Dr Vincent Gutebarge, the chief medical officer of FIFPRO, the World Football Players Union, which represents an estimated 65,000 professional footballers worldwide. That group carried out the research. Dr Gutebarge spoke with Nine to Noon's Catherine Ryan. We know from the uh, media that uh, a lot of uh, current of former players suffer from uh, mental illness. Uh, we had a lot of testimony in the media uh, with tragic uh, endings such as uh, suicide. Uh, so we know from one side that there were some cases in there uh, that needed to be uh, studied. And on the scientific side, uh, we also uh, know that there are barely some scientific study conducted uh, in professional football uh, in relation to mental illness. So with these two uh, reasons, uh, we thought it was a, a good reason to, to uh, conduct this study. You knew you had a problem, right? Yeah, we know from single cases, but uh, in terms of uh, a huge international study, it was not done yet. Uh, so it was for us a reason to uh, to strive to recruit uh, a lot of participants uh, across different uh, countries, across different continents, in order to uh, to get a global uh, view on uh, mental health in professional football, both during and after a career. When you looked at the findings, were you even surprised at the level of reportage of problems with mental health and depression? in current players and in retired players? Yes, I was a little bit surprised because when you look at a sign of anxiety and depression that we found in uh, current player, it was 26%. So one out of uh, four players reported some sign of anxiety depression, which is uh, as high as in the general population. And uh, by contrast to uh, the thought of the general public, when they think of oh, professional players, they have a really perfect life, you know, they have a, a good money, a good contract, a good life, uh, but it, it was definitely different. Uh, 26% is a high percentage, and it was even higher in the uh, former player, and it uh, enlightened uh, the difficult period after retirement from sport. With the figure for the retired players, 39% reporting depression and anxiety problems, Yes. Did, was that weighted towards early after retirement in the adjustment phase, or did you find it continued for some time post-retirement? Uh, no, I think it's the first uh, reason you, you stated, because we recruited uh, especially some former players just after they retired, uh, maximal five to ten years after retirement, in order to 
to get a good insight about the mental health problem that might occur uh, during this uh, crucial uh, period because you can imagine when you are ret retiring from sports, uh, if it's football or any sport discipline, when you are retiring, you, you lose any structure uh, in your life. You need to find a new challenge in your life. You need to find a new occupation uh, in your life, and it's not easy when you are not well prepared. And by contrast to other sport disciplines in professional football, during your career, there is uh, uh, not so much attention uh, in career planning in terms of long terms. One-fifth of the present players reporting adverse use of alcohol or adverse alcohol habits, and a third of the retired players had yep. adverse alcohol habits. The pressures, whether it's that you've played for your national side and you get a one-paragraph notice that you're no longer required, or whether it's your professional club that mucks you around for 18 months and then tells you, sorry, you're not required. <laughs> In that instance, it's someone's very livelihood. The pressures are incredibly obvious, Vincent, aren't they? They are large and obvious. And the question is, how well are the various levels of the sport, uh, managers and administrators of the sport, factoring in the pressures on these players and giving them some means to cope and manage with them? Yes, the pressure is, of course, uh, huge. And, um, of course, uh, there are many neg negative events that occur during a career when you are left out for the team uh, or you go to the uh, shadow teams uh, as well, you have to be able to cope with these kind of negative feelings uh, optimally uh, in order to avoid uh, any uh, mental uh, problem. And it's, it's, it's quite difficult. And the whole culture within professional football is quite hard. Uh, no hard feelings, you know, but uh, sometimes uh, it's difficult for a player to, to accept and to understand why uh, one day is uh, star of the team and the next day, because of uh, manager decision, is uh, left out for the rest of the season. Uh, yeah, it's really a hard, uh, a hard word. That was the Chief Medical Officer of Fifth Pro, Dr Vincent Gutebarge, talking to Nine to Noon's Catherine Ryan. And that brings us to the end of Extra Time for another week. Remember, if you wish to contact us, you can email us at sport at radionz.co.nz. I'm Stephen Houston. Bye for now. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.